Thank you, Simon. <laughs> okay, we're going to be in Galatians 5. I've never done this before, but we're only going to look at one verse tonight. Um, so, we'll see how that goes. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, we're going to be in Galatians 5, verse 1. That's the only verse we're going to look at tonight. Um, so, if you remember last week, we were talking about adoption, and we were talking about how uh, God has made us sons and daughters. He's made us children of himself, and we talked about how ridiculous that idea is um, for, for a ton of reasons that we're not going to get into tonight, uh, but how ridiculous that idea is. Paul uses that picture of being sons, being children, and acting like slaves. Um, he uses that picture uh, for all of chapter 4 of Galatians. Um, so I'm going to take that picture and we're going to dive a little deeper into Galatians 5.1 tonight using that picture that Paul has created for us. Um, so just I want you to think for a second the life of a slave and the life of a son in, let's just say, uh, I, I don't know if you've seen Downton Abbey. It's a good show. Um, most of you probably haven't, but some of you have. Uh, this is 1900, early 1900s England. It's an abbey. It's a big house. So a really rich guy, uh, high upper society, and so he's got a bunch of servants that live around. So if you can picture that, think of a, just a, you know, a big house with a really, uh, you know, really uptight English guy uh, and servants. And think of the life of the children of that guy, and think of the life of those servants who sort of live in, the, in, the, in the, the downstairs quarters. They have their own little paths, so they're not even seen by people most of the time. Think about their lives. So um, how does a servant get approval from the master, the father of the house, compared to the way a son gets approval from the master, the father of the house? Well, a, a servant, a slave, has to work for that approval. If he doesn't work, if he doesn't do a good job, he doesn't gain the approval of the master, of, of the father of the house. What about a son? It's not the same. Son has approval based purely on the virtue of being a son, being loved by the father, just based purely on that. So you see the servant has to work for approval, whereas the son doesn't. The son is just loved, accepted, and approved of by virtue of who he is. Okay, think about, think about how a servant receives things. A servant receives wages. And those wages are based on how well the servant works. If they show up on time, if they get up on time, if they have the right attitude, if they stand the right way, if they do the right things, if they don't spill gravy on your nice outfit, then they receive their wages and they don't get fired. But what about a son? How does a son receive good things in the house? Well, just by virtue of who he is. He receives all that the father has. Material, immaterial, he receives all that the father has based purely on the virtue of being a son. Right, so, okay, so keeping that in mind, and just this difference between s servants and sons in this house. Okay, so imagine, imagine in that house, this is a stretch, you maybe not have known I was going there, but the master of that house is God. And imagine that. And I'm not going to tell you if you're a servant or a son, you have to decide that for yourself. But the master of the house, and if you've got to close your eyes to imagine this, because we're, we're going to trot this little story out, so... If looking at things is going to distract you, then just close your eyes. It's okay. Um, so imagine, I'm going to close my eyes because I'm just going to. So imagine you're, you're in this house and, and God, the, the, the master, 
calls you, calls you up. He just calls you into his room. He wants to see you. Now forget that you're in England in the 1900s and really think about you and your relationship to God. Really think about your life and your relationship to God. And, and if God called you to come into a room with him, what, what is your first response on hearing that? What is your first response on hearing that God wants you to come into a room and see him? Is, is your first response, oh crap, I must have done something wrong. And he's going to lay into me when I get there. And he's going to tell me all the idiot things I do. Like, think about that. If God was going to be like, hey, whatever your name is, Jesse. Hey, I need to see you. So you get, you get the summons. What is your first response? Crap, I must have done something. Okay? Or, or is it maybe, yeah, no problem. And you come up and you stand at the door like this. And you're like, okay, what do you want from me? What do I have to do? What do I have to do to make this right? Do you come in, do you, if, if God summons you into his presence, do you come and do you stand at attention and wonder exactly what it is you, that you're supposed to do and you'll go perform that? Or are you like, oh crap, I must have done something wrong. Or, or think about your life. Think about how you think about God. Think about how he conceives of you, how you conceive of the way he thinks about you. Do you run in there and demand, demand an explanation for something? Do you run in there and demand an explanation for the way life is, for the hurts you've had, for the life you're living, for the promises he didn't keep? If God was going to call you into a room, what's the first thing that's going to come to your mind? And what are you going to do when you get there? Oh, crap. What do you want from me? You owe me an explanation? Or, like, what, what, what would you do, right? Like, what would you run in? Would you just run up to him? And he gives you like that old, smelly breath grandpa hug and just holds you. And you just weep because he's been better to you than you could have ever imagined or deserved or wanted. He's just been so good to you. And you just weep in thankfulness. Like, which one of those are you? Think about that. Like, which one of those are you? You may be something completely different. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you run in just to ask him for a go-kart or something. I don't know. Like, well... Think about where are you in that? Like, where, where, is, where do you conceive of your relationship with God and the way he looks at you? So your answer to that is going to be kind of telling. It's going to be telling to where the state of your relationship with him actually is. Okay? Like, the answer to that is very telling. It's very telling to whether you're living the life of a son or you're living the life of a slave. And so just, I want you to think about that. I want you to consider that as, we're ta- as, as I'm talking. We're probably not going to talk. It's probably just me, just to let you know that before we get going. But where, where you answer that is really going to let you know where you, re- like, where you kind of stand in this relationship. Do you feel like, do you feel like he's going to lay into you? Do you feel like you need an explanation? Do you feel like he wants you to do something? Or do you run in there and he just holds you? And you're just like, I love you. And you're like, I love you too. Right? So, uh, go to Galatians 5.1. Short verse. I memorized it because I'm really spiritual. Um, so, it says, uh, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Let me make sure I'm doing it the right way. 
Okay, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So, tons of questions should come in. They do for me, but I get paid to prepare sermons, so that's a part of what I get paid to do. So, uh, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So, okay, so freedom, Christ has set me free. First, freedom from what? Christ, did Christ set me free? Do I feel free? Like, and for freedom? So he set me free for freedom. What's freedom then? Like, there's a ton of questions that come rolling in just on the first half of that, that verse. So before Christ, I wasn't free is what you're saying? No, you weren't. Um, so, what Paul is writing to the Galatians to, like we've talked about before, this is our third or fourth week in Galatians, but he's talking to the Galatians because what has happened is he's come into Galatia, which is, I believe it's near Turkey. Um, I believe it's actually in present-day Turkey now. Um, maybe completely wrong on that. You're going to tell me later. Um, but he's coming to Galatia. He's coming to this city, and he has preached the gospel to them. Some have converted from Judaism and seen Christ as the Messiah, have put Judaism aside with its rituals and its customs and its laws, and are now worshiping God through Christ. Their sins are washed away. They've been given new life. They believed the gospel that Paul preached to them, and then Paul left and moved on to wherever he went after that. Then come along these people called Judaizers. And what they're saying is they're going to the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people who have become Christians, and they're saying it's cool if you believe Jesus was the Messiah, but if you're Jewish, you still have to observe all the Jewish customs. You still have to observe the Ten Commandments and everything that went along with the Ten Commandments. You still have to observe all the rituals and rites of Judaism. If you weren't Jewish, then you still have to do that also. So the big part of Galatians that, that, that's being talked about is, is circumcision. If you're not a Jew, you need to be circumcised and you need to observe the Jewish customs. So basically, you, you're a Christian, cool, but you need to go in the back door through Judaism to come to Christianity or God is not going to be pleased with you. He's not going to like you. And you're not going to have the fullness of what God wants for your life. And so Paul, in, in really aggressive language throughout this book, is saying, no, I wish those people would emasculate themselves because of how wrong they are. And they are actually subjecting you to slavery. And so don't believe what they're telling you. Don't believe what they're telling you because you will be subjected again to slavery. So, my guess is not many of you are considering Jewish rituals, customs, and laws and thinking about circumcision if you're not to be pleasing to God. It's my, my guess. Could be true. If it is, we definitely need to talk. My guess is 21st century, postmodern, maybe post-postmodern now, college students, what is it that you're in, in danger of becoming a slave to again? What are you in danger of becoming a slave to? Um, and honestly, for a lot of you people who are raised in church, you people, a lot of you people who are raised in church, it could be religion in the same way, just not Jewish religion, just evangelical Bible Belt Christian religion. And so, so you might be enslaved to this idea um, that if you don't read the Bible, if you don't pray and you don't evangelize, then God really doesn't like you. And so all those are good things, right? They're not bad things. They're good things. Uh, but growing up in our culture, 
you've been, it's, been, it's been thrown at you so much that if you don't do these things, if you don't operate in this way, then God really doesn't like you. And so we sort of hang this yoke on you. We sort of yoke you up with a little bit of burden. It's not bad, just a little burden. Um, and you get to carry that around. And so you're yoked up with religion. You're yoked up with some things you need to do to be pleasing to God. Some things you need to do to make God like you. Like, okay, accept you in through Christ and he loves you or whatever, but he just he doesn't. He doesn't like, he can't like me unless I do, unless I do the right things. Or maybe even a heavier burden than that uh, that's still religious um, is you may be yoked up. You may have the burden of saving your family and your friends. You may have grown up in, in this Bible Belt evangelical culture that says it, if you image Christ enough, your parents and your friends are going to wonder what's different and they're going to come running to Christ. And it's on you to do that. Like that is, that's your job. And so a lot of you want to see your family enjoy the freedom and the beauty of God in Christ. And so over time, we've squarely placed the burden of the salvation of your parents on you or the salvation of your siblings on you, or the salvation of your high school friends on you. And so evangelism is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. But it's not a great thing when it's what gives you value and makes you pleasing to God. So we've taken something good and thrown it around your neck, tapped you on the butt, and said, go ahead. So you get to carry around this yoke of religion. And, and I'm going to go through a few of these. And if you don't connect with any of these, then I'm an idiot. Um, so, I mean, some of you could, it may not be religious at all, but you've got this yoke of perfection. You have this yoke of performance hung around your neck. And it probably wasn't from church. It probably could be a little bit from church. But a lot of times this comes from, like, subtle ways that you were raised. So your family may have silently taught you that love is predicated on your performance within the family or your performance of what they require and expect from you. And so that you're never really quite good enough, right? And so that you got like a couple A's, a couple B's, and a C, and they're not like sweet, a couple A's, they're more like a C. We know you can do better. We know you can do better. And so you work for a semester, and you bump your C up to an A, and it's not like, sweet, you bumped your C up to an A. It's like, you got two Bs. And you can, you can do better. You can do better. And so it's this constant like, yeah, yeah, you did good. You did good, but you can do better. You did good. You did good, but you can do better. And it's this constant push that perform better, perform better, perform better, and we'll like you a little more. And so slowly over time, if you're not perfect, if you aren't, if you, if you fail ever, or if you fail a bunch of times in a, in, in, in a short period of time, you begin to feel like not only your parents and the people around you, but God himself doesn't like you because you're not performing well enough. And this can be from sports. I got to watch my four-year-old nephew at t-ball practice this weekend, and it was hilarious because everyone else was normal except for one guy that was about to kill his four-year-old son. And even the grandpa was in on it. Like, this kid just wasn't into it. He just wasn't into it. And the dad would, like, run over and rip him by the arm. And he's like, come on, kid. And it's like, whoa, where is that going to go later on? So, 
I mean, I don't know what it is, but performance, sports-wise, school-wise, family-wise, didn't treat your siblings right, I don't know, but you've sort of got ingrained in you this need to perform perfectly. You're not allowed to be a human. You're not allowed to mess up. You're not allowed to make mistakes. You need to perform better. And love, acceptance, approval is predicated on that. Could be image. This may not come from family. This can come from society. So you've got magazines, you've got TV, you've got your friends, you've got everyone around you, and, and even people that aren't around you. Like you're watching a television show, and then every, every I don't know, 12 minutes you get bombarded with new advertisements mostly geared towards your image and what you think about yourself and so that uh, you need to be uh, specifically if you're a girl you need to be 120 pounds you need to have the right shape body you need to wear the right clothes you have to have the right makeup and your right hair and what's right is constantly changing so you need to keep up with what's right also or you're going to walk by and some other people who got it right are just going to sort of snicker at you because you look ridiculous I guess and so keeping up with what's right is constantly changing, and you constantly have to, have to make yourself into something to gain approval, to gain acceptance, and to have people say, oh my God, she's beautiful. And that's where your value comes from. And so you have this yoke, you have this slavery to your image, and it, and it drives what you think about, it drives what you wear, it drives what you do, it drives half of your life. And it's just this burden yoked squarely on your neck and it's something you got to carry around and then a huge one in our society is sexuality a huge one in our society is sexuality we are geared to be sexual creatures your identity is sexuality like everything is geared around sexuality so like our society normal people have had at least two sexual partners by the time they're 20 and if you haven't then you're not normal and you're weird and so we have the 40-year-old virgin. And we're like, what an idiot. How can someone have gone 40 years without having had sex? And so we watch it and we're like, hilarious. This idiot guy. And then we watch the virgin diaries. And it's like they're wild animals or something. And we're like, oh my gosh. These virgins. <laughs> and we're just watching. And they're telling us about their lives like they're, like they're from another freaking planet or something. And so, and even that show just is like, so here's some weird people we can watch for a while, and then, then we'll go back to Jersey Shore, the normal people. And it's like, what? And so, and so our, our, our culture drives sexuality constantly. And so, and so it's expected. You're not, you're not masculine male if you don't pursue girls to take advantage of them sexually, not in a bad way, but just a little further than they want. And that's normal. If you're not a guy who does that, if you don't get a few drinks and go, try to, go to the bar to try to meet a few girls, and just, just, pers- just push them a little farther than they want to go. Not, don't rape them. But just further than they want to go. That's masculine. That's a good thing because we're a highly sexualized culture. And then girls, this one's even worse. This one's even worse. Don't get offended. If you want to, that's fine. But I'm just saying, like, sort of like I see life. So girls are expected to give in to those advances. Not too much. Not all the time, because then you're a slut. But then, but, but you should a little bit, or then you're a prude. And so y'all got to walk this other fine line. 
where guys are just like, yeah, okay, let's have sex. But you've got to, it's got to be the right, it's got to be the right guy, or then you're a loser for having sex with the wrong guy. Oh, and it's it, not too much now, or else people are going to talk about you, that you're easy. And then, and it's like, seriously? Seriously. That's where our culture is. So sexualized, and that's constantly being fed to us as normal. It's normality. This is where you are. This is what you've got to do. And so you've been yoked with a completely unbiblical, completely destructive view of sexuality. And all of these feed into each other. All of these feed into each other. Your image and how that relates to your sexuality. Doing the right things at the right time to be accepted by the right people. And so you just have got all these yokes of slavery squarely placed on your shoulders. Some are religious, some aren't. And we live in this really weird, weird society. And it's so weird that everyone's telling you it's normal and that you need to, you need to follow suit. So, so Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So all of these things, all of, these, all of this push for all of that slavery is the product of what we find out in Ephesians 2 are these three powers working against us. Our own flesh, the world, and the demonic realm. And so our flesh sort of feeds in and just follows the direction that this world goes. And the demonic realm is there sort of guiding that, coaxing it along in some way. So you've got these three powers that are constantly at work against us, especially believers, but even non-believers, constantly at work to, to subject you to slavery. And I don't know what kind it is for you. I don't know how many of those are true for you or if none of them are. But you have all these three powers working against you to subject you to slavery. And it's also a product, like we see, of Genesis 3, of being cut off from the source of life so that we, we have sinned and our flesh is constantly pursuing that way of life that has cut us off from the source of life. And so we are not free. We are not free until Christ comes. So it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. And there is no freedom found outside of Christ. There is no freedom found outside from the redeeming work of his blood to satisfy the wrath of God towards our way of life. And so the love of God sends his son, led by the Spirit to the cross, so that he sucks up all of the wrath of God towards us. And then it says in Ephesians 2 that we are, this is crazy, by believing in Christ, and we talked about this on the first the first week, we are placed at the right hand of the Father in Christ. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we exercise authority over those other powers. So not only do we get to go to heaven when this is all over, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we exercise authority over the powers that held us down. We exercise control over our flesh. We exercise authority in the name of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and can stop the lies being fed to us by the world and the demonic realm. So you see how that sort of works? So it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. It's for freedom. And that freedom connects you to, is caught up in, the love of God 
and the intimate relationship that follows once you are made his son, once you are made a co-heir, once you are made a child of the king of the universe, and that all that is left for you is love and not wrath. And it's not about your religious activities, but it's about, it's about Christ, what he did on the cross, and what follows our relationship with the Father. So, so it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. God's desire for your life is freedom from these things. So what is that freedom supposed to feel like? I think it feels a lot like Matthew eleven twenty eight. Don't even go there. It just says, and you'll remember this, Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will, and you will, you will find rest for your souls. So, what does that freedom feel like? What is that freedom like? It's a lot like rest. If Christ's yoke is on you and no other yoke is on you, you will experience rest. I'm not saying you'll experience an easy, beautiful, rich life. I'm saying you will experience rest in the middle of trials, in the middle of troubles, in the middle of the storm. You will experience rest. Your life will be constituted by rest. Leading to intimacy with the Father. Okay? So Christ comes and says, come to me if you're heavy laden. Come to me if you have all of these things yoked around your neck. Come to me. I will break that yoke. I will pull that off of you. I will put my yoke on you, which is restful. It's gentle. It is not heavy. It is not tiresome. It is not impossible. You see? So freedom feels a lot like rest. And so my question is, are you tired? Because if it's Christ's yoke that is on you, you can be busy, you cannot be busy. You could be facing some pretty difficult things, or life can be going pretty good. But if it's Christ's yoke that's squarely placed upon you, you will experience rest. It won't be laborious because it is laborious keeping up with a changing image. It is laborious trying to be perfect for your parents and all the people around you. It is laborious trying to do enough right actions to please a perfect God. It is laborious to try to save the souls of the people around you. That is laborious. It is not your job. So, you can't go from being a slave to a son or daughter through any other means than Christ. So, then we get to the second part of the verse. Therefore, stand firm and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. So, there's so many implications here. There's so many questions that come in here. So, this means we can accept Christ, become Christians, and become slaves again? Like, what happened to eternal security, right? Like, I accept Jesus, I go to heaven, and there's nothing that can ever happen there. I'm good. Like, what happened? Okay, so, so he's saying, therefore, stand firm and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. So this is implying that you can actually become a Christian, you can believe in Jesus Christ for all those things that I mentioned, the yoke can be cut, and then you're like, sweet, a yoke. 
oh, this looks heavy, and you put it on your back. That you can literally do that. That's what this is implying, right? So like I said, the world, your flesh, and the demonic realm are still opposed to you following Christ. They're still opposed to you. And they may not be able to kill you, but they definitely can make your life suck. And they can definitely make your life fruitless. And they can definitely steal from you the life that God has for you. He, they can definitely add some more yokes to you. And so you're bearing Christ's yoke, yeah, but you're also bearing the, uh, the yoke of image again. You're bearing uh, the yoke of perfection again and the yoke of religion again. And you're bearing, um, I lost the last one. But anyway, you're bearing all these yokes. You can be a believer and not enjoy the life of a believer. And my guess is in evangelical Bible Belt Christianity, which turns out isn't the healthiest of all the Christianities on the world, evangelical Bible Belt Christianity has a ton of people who sing the songs, know the verses, and are in chains. And are in chains. And we sing, what is it, that Gunger song? Is it Gunger for freedom? That I am set free. And we sing it. And we think all it's talking about is hell. Because life doesn't feel free for you. Life feels heavy and burdensome and weighty. And so you sing it. You don't really feel it. Because you're like, oh, I know it's about hell. I know, I know it's just about we're not going to hell. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's very easy to be a Christian and be in slavery. Remember the parable of the soils? Remember the soil, a seed that falls among the thorns? It accepts the truth of God, and it grows up into a plant, but it's choked out, and it's fruitless. That's what that is what that is you've got the one plant that grows and it's in the healthy soil except for there's all these weeds and thorns around it and it chokes the life out of the plant and so so really like what's weird is the way we respond to this as pastors is we're like these people aren't bearing fruit they're not evangelizing. They're not reading the Bible. They're not praying. And so you come here and I'm like, read the Bible and pray and evangelize. And I've got some good stories to make you feel a little guilty about it. And you're like, I do need to do that. I do need to do that. And so you go and you try it for a week and you really want to read. Like you really want to read and you really do want to pray. Like you understand that those are good things and they're not bad things and they're things you want to do. But then you go and it's completely unsatisfying. It's nothing like the stories I told you about the one guy that prayed and like money falls from the sky and he saves India. And you're like, and you're like, it's just, it's not the same. And so you grow tired and you grow bitter and you grow angry and then. And then this Christian life is this weird, weird spot where it's nothing like you hear me talking about, but at least you're not going to hell. It's this really weird spot, right? And so, that's just my question is, where are you? If you're in the master's house and he, and he calls you, what's, what's your response? Is it crap? I've done something wrong. You, like you could be 
You might have that, that yoke of perfection and performance. You come to the door and ask him what he wants you to do. You might have that yoke of religion. Do you go in and demand answers? It could be because you've got this yoke of sexuality, this yoke of image, and this promise of satisfaction that never fulfills. And so deep down, you're sort of pissed at the way things are. Sort of. And so you want answers. So if it's not, if, if like the way you conceive of God is the moment you see him and you just run to him and you're overwhelmed with this thankful, just gratitude for him doing so much and you having done so little. And this love and embrace. Like I just want, like I really want to know. Like are the things that you're enslaved to and you're sort of pretending your way through this thing. I'm not asking anything from you. I'm really not. But like, it's very easy. It's very easy in our Christian culture to go from it's for freedom that Christ has set me free. I don't stand firm because I really don't know how. And I submit again to a yoke of slavery. So the question is, like I said, where are you? And if you don't want to be there, what do you do? And so Paul explains it fully. Stand firm. It's not fully. Okay. I look at stand firm and I'm like, how? What does that even mean? Like I, I, I lived, okay, I, became, I was a believer for five years and I lived at least three years of my life in this. Like under incredible burdens. Incredible burdens. For performance. Incredible bur- burdens for changing your life. Right? Like, It's super easy, and it's, it's super easy. So what does he mean, stand firm? How does that work? What does that look like? I'm going to give you two ways. I'm going to give you two ways that I understand it to begin. Um, and then I'm going to say something else. So your first role in this, your first role in this, if, if you do have that, if you do feel like you're in slavery to something, if you do feel that there is no joy, there is no peace, there is no life, there is no rest in, your, in, in the Christianity that you are following, if you've taken Christ's yoke upon you and it's not easy and gentle, it's confession. If you are really a believer, it's not just between you and God. You're actually a part of a body. You're actually a part of a body. And I know it's hard to trust people, and I know it's hard to reveal things because you think you're the worst person on earth. Um, but the first part of this is opening up and showing where you are. And honestly, you're not going to be judged here. You're, you're not going to be judged here. I know it's super hard to trust people, and I know you've probably been trampled on before by people. I know it's super hard. But, well, just to start, I'm an idiot. Like, I... I was addicted to cocaine and pills and weed for like seven years. And they still employ me here. Okay, so they're not like all about perfection here. Obviously, I wouldn't be here. Like, you're not going to tell me anything crazy. And I'm going to be like, whoa, you're gone. Goner. Like, it's not, it just isn't going to happen. 
And so the first step in this, um, the first step is being open and being willing to be open about where you are and, and what you're not getting. Because we're wrapped up in chains and they're all convoluted and we don't know what they look like. And so the second step is what, the second thing that happens is believing. The Galatians were believing, we find out in Galatians 1, they were believing another gospel. They had turned from the gospel of Christ and they're believing another gospel. And so you may be believing the gospel of, I don't know, us weekly. You may be believing the gospel of perfectionism. There's all these gospels. If you do this, then good things will happen and you do those things and good things don't happen. And so you've begun believing all these gospels and the nature of Christianity is one that's predicated on belief. If it's Belief sets the foundation for practice, and then on the, pra- the foundation of practice comes feeling, comes your experience of this life. So feeling doesn't govern what you believe, but it does give you a good indicator of the way things are going. And so belief, then practice, then feeling. So it's ex- belief, practice, experience. So if, if you're not experiencing it, you can sort of whittle this thing down through practice and belief and sort of see some things that you're holding on to because the way that the demonic realm and the world works is just lies. That's the, only, like, that's the way they work against us. It's just lies and only lies. And so over time and over time and over time, you just believe little lies, little lies, little lies, little lies, and then you create a little fortress of little lies, and all these little lies are just working against you to rob from you the life that God has for you and the future that God has for you. And so you go on believing lies, and you're like, at least heaven's coming, but there is no life, there is no rest, there is no beauty, there is no joy, there is no excitement. And so evangelism is something you do, not something you like love to talk about. Like, I make the best corn in the whole city of Nacogdoches. It's the best corn ever. It's ridiculous. Like, I've perfected making corn. It'll make you angry it's so good. And when you eat my corn, you will tell everyone else about it. Because it's so good. I'm not even lying. I'm not even prideful. It's so good. It's ridiculous. And once you have tasted it, you love it. It is so good. And you don't mind telling everybody. I don't even mind telling you up here because it's so good. (laughs) Evangelism is a natural, organic expression of your life with God. It's a natural, organic expression of your life with God. So I don't have to pay you 20 bucks to evangelize, and I'm going to pay you 20 bucks to go tell everybody about the corn that I make either. You see what I'm saying? You taste of God, and this life overwhelms you, and it's beautiful, and you talk about it. That's the way that evangelism works. And so evangelism and reading and prayer are expressions of this life. They're organic expressions of the way this life with God is. If they've been boiled down to things you've got to do, and it's, so it's you live up to it or you don't live up to it, there's a kink. There's a problem. There's a problem, right? And so, um, those come from believing lies, and they come from believing little lies. So, 
I don't know if you believe that you've got to clean yourself up before God will like you. I don't know that to be lovable or fruitful in Christianity, you can never fail if you believe that. I don't know if you, have to, if you believe you've got to be perfect and a perfect example of Christ to save your family. I don't know if you believe that if you do something wrong, the Holy Spirit's not going to lead you anymore and your life's going to fall through the cracks and he's just going to forget about you. Like, I don't know if you believe that you're unattractive unless you look like an airbrush magazine model. I don't know if you believe that guys won't like you unless you perform sexually. I don't know if you believe... Um, any of those things or all of those things. But they're little pressures and they're little lies, and so we accept them and we take them and we build our life on them, and they're not true. And so the way, the way it works is simple, like it really is. It's complex, but it's basically simple. Um, tonight I'm just going to ask a couple things from you guys. Like if you really feel like if you do feel like, like you're living this life and it's just, not, it's just not where you want it to be, like it's not where it's supposed to be, and you sort of convince yourself that the Christian life is hard. Well, it is hard, but there is rest and there's beauty and there's life and there's joy. And if you're not, if you're not getting that, um, we gave you some paper uh, when you came in that's got some blanks on it on the bottom. Uh, there's also in the back of those, in, in the back of the seats cards. Um, put your name in there, and, and I, would love for you to, I would love to talk to you, and I, I'd love for you to talk with Easley. But I'd love to talk to you about these things because the way this verse lays this out is stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Um, if you are in slavery, there's not just little things you can do to get out of slavery. It takes really being delivered from slavery before you can stand firm against the way that this, the, the attacks of the demonic realm and the world work against you. And so it takes some very simple but very deliberate ways of doing that, of seeing where it is you're holding on to lies and where it is you need to let those go and, and, and confess those openly. So this doesn't just come in private where you're like, okay, God, I never want to do these things again, or I don't want to live this way. Please change it. Like this happens in community, and this happens as the body ministers to the body. And so if you're in that place where it's just not, it's just not going right, I would love for you to put your name on there, and I'd love for you to meet with me this week. And I'd love to meet with, I mean, maybe not me, but easily, but one of us. I would love to meet with you. Um, and so we can get past this place of slavery where you can stand up again. Because I think for a lot of you, the Christian life is, yeah, you're going to heaven, but it feels like you're getting kicked around all day. And you can't stand up unless you can break some of these lies that you really can't see yourself. And so it happens in community, and I believe we can walk you through in some very simple ways out of this, like out of where you are. And so my pleading with you, my, my asking you is not for anything, but if that's where you are, I would love for you not to be there because I know it sucks. I know it sucks. And so th there's cards there. There's this paper there. If you'll fill it out and put it in, the, in one of the baskets in the back, I would love to meet with you.